This morning we're coming to John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 and 37 through 39. I will read this passage for us. Follow along with me. This is God's holy and inspired word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to, to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no. He is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And skip down to verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. Let me pray. We'll ask God to come and help us through the Spirit this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come into worship this morning, and there are lots of barriers that we bring into this place this morning. Some of us are bored, some of us are distracted, others of us are angry and full of fear, some of us are disappointed and frustrated that maybe we're not able to get a break this week uh, as others are away on spring break. Maybe we're frustrated that we don't have the resources to get away. Lord, we bring lots of things into this room this morning, and we need a word. We need a good word. We need a word from the outside, and so would you come this morning and speak to our hearts? Would you remove these barriers? Pray that you would remove the distractions, that you would engage our hearts and warm our hearts and encourage us, but also challenge us through this great passage in John chapter 7. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Okay, to, re- you know, to really understand a passage, you know, the f- most famous words in real estate, location, 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 well, that's oftentimes the truth in studying our Bibles, uh, except instead of, lo- well, kind of location, but context, context, context. Uh, and the context is very, very important here in order for us to really grasp what is going on in John chapter 7 and really into John chapter 8. What is the context? Look at verse 2. The annual feast, the annual feast of the booze, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, also known as the Season of Gladness. And this was a harvest feast that lasted for seven days. And it was uh, an annual celebration where the, the, the people would gather in Jerusalem uh, and they would live in tents for a week. Even if you lived in Jerusalem and had a house, you would go out and camp out with your family. And so it was a big party of sorts. It was very festive, very joyful. And when I think about it, what comes to mind, I'm not sure if, you know, you know I come from RUF at Ole Miss. I think of the Grove on a big weekend. Uh, And I'm not sure if you've ever seen, and these posters were all around Oxford, but you would see these aerial shots of the Grove on a big game day weekend. And you wouldn't see people. All you would see is the tops of tents. Tents were everywhere in the Grove. That's a kind of a picture of what we have here. It was a sea of tents everywhere you went. And it was very festive and very celebratory. And commentators say that you have not seen a celebration that you have not seen joy until you've seen and experienced this feast. When you were uh, back in that day, when you talked about the feast, it was not Passover. It was this feast, the feast of the booze. What are they celebrating? Well, this was a feast where they celebrated God's goodness to them. When they would live in tents years ago, when they were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and God provided for them water, and manna. They celebrated those 40 years where they wandered, and in the midst of their unbelief, God provided for them everything they needed. That's the picture. And in the middle of this feast, Jesus shows up, and he goes to the temple. And when he goes to the temple, he does two things. If you, if you read all of chapter 7, you'll notice that it's one confrontation after another. Jesus is confronting here the way of the world with the way of the kingdom of God. He's putting those two in contrast, and he's saying there's a head-on collision between the world and between what I'm bringing to the world. So we see confrontation, but then Jesus also stands up, and he gives an invitation. That's verses 37 and following. So we see those two things this morning in this passage. We're going to look at it under those headings. The confrontation and secondly, the invitation. So let's look at the first one, the confrontation. What is Jesus confronting? Look at verses 2 through 4. And so Jesus' brothers are trying to get him to go to the festival so other people can see the works that he's doing. Go show yourself to the world. In other words, 
They're saying, go make your mark on the world. And in order for you to make your mark, you've got to leave this podunk town called Galilee. And you've got to go to Hollywood. You've got to go to the big city. Because that's where you're going to make it big. That's where people are going to see who you really are. Jesus, you need an agent. And we want to be that agent for you. And maybe you're thinking, well, okay, but maybe they had his best interest in mind. Maybe they just wanted him to succeed. Verse 5 tells us otherwise, doesn't it? Not even, John didn't have to insert this, not even his brothers believed in him. And you see the parallels, don't you, between what his brothers are doing and what Satan does in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4 when he says, Jesus, you can have all of this. You can be famous. You can have all of this. And remember, Jesus says, no, that is not the way I will go. And he answers Satan exactly the way he answers his brothers. That's not what I have been called to do. And he says, you go to the feast. I am not yet going. You see, his brothers wanted him to have fame and glory. And Jesus comes and says, I am about humility in the way of no reputation. The things that you care about and the things the world cares about, and I would say the things that oftentimes we care about this morning, fame and recognition, Jesus devalues. And not only devalues, he dismisses. And he confronts us this morning with this question. What do you really care about? What do you really care about? What is defining who or what is defining success for you? Is it the world and its standards or is it the kingdom of God? Jesus comes and he says success for him is obedience and faith. Look at verse 14. He continues. He changes his mind and decides to go up to the feast, but not in public. He goes in private, and he confronts the religious leaders or the religious establishment of the day. They're on the lookout for him, and it says that he stands up to teach, and isn't it interesting is they marveled. Their jaw is on the floor as they're hearing Jesus teach, and look at what they say. How is it that he... Uh, has not studied anywhere. He's unlearned. He doesn't have any credentials. He didn't go to seminary. Look at the response of Jesus in verse 16. My teaching comes from God. Isn't it interesting? He, He doesn't take any credit for it. We would take credit. Jesus says, no, what I'm teaching does not belong to me. It has come from God. And you see what they're upset about. Jesus doesn't have the pedigree. Jesus doesn't have the credentials. And for them, they had built their life on credentials. They had built their life on pedigree. And Jesus was shaking their foundation to the core. You see, the old way of doing things, the old pecking order was being threatened. And they didn't like it. They look and they say, this unschooled, unlearned man, Jesus, we marvel at his teaching, but yet he has no training. Jesus was smashing their system into a billion pieces. 
And Jesus wants to smash our system this morning. If we're building our life on anything else other than him, he wants to smash that system. And listen, the world has a system, and it's this. Earn your way in. Earn your way in. See, oftentimes in the world, it's about going to the right schools, being a part of the right family and the right community and getting the right degree and the right grad degree so that then we can get the right job. And so this morning, again, we're confronted with the question is, where do you look for your credentials? Where do we look for validation? And every human being looks somewhere. Because that's the way we're built. We are looking to something. We're either looking to Jesus for our credentials or we're looking to something else to give us ultimate value. You see, we all look to something that gives us worth and value and significance and security. It might be your education. It might be your job. It might be your morality or your family or your religious involvement. It's your credentials. And what happens oftentimes is those credentials get shaken at their core and they get threatened and we start to lose confidence and get very sad or angry or frustrated in some way. We, re- we respond in lots of different ways. Why is that the case? Well, because that's our identity. We have built our life and our identity on how competent we are. In other words, we've built it on merit and Jesus comes and says, I'm going to turn that way of thinking on its head because Christianity and life with me is not about your credentials. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about merit. It's about grace. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to give you a new identity, one that's not shifting like the circumstances of the the world, but one that is secure and stable. Jesus is in a head-on collision in this passage with the world. Look at verses 6 and 7. That's what he's getting at. You want to talk about strong? Last week I thought was pretty strong. This is pretty strong. Look at verses 6 and 7. My time has not yet come, but your time, it's always here. It's always your time. See, Jesus, when he uses that word, my hour or my time, always in the Gospel of John, he's referring to the hour of his death. And so he tells his brother, my time, the time for me to die and go to the cross is not here, but it's always your time because you work by the world's clock. Your time is the clock of the world. Your time is fame and fortune and credentials and reputation building. So it's always your time. And the world doesn't hate you. Because you go along with the world. That's what he's telling them. It's pretty strong medicine. But you go along with the world. The world hates me because I push against it. The world cannot hate itself. But you see, it hates Jesus because he calls it for what it is. He says it's evil. And by evil here, he means it's opposed to the values of the kingdom of God. And when you start to push against the world, the world will hate you. Is that not true? Did we not see that? in fever pitch right now in our culture, start pushing against the world and see what happens. How challenging is that for us this morning? Are we living for Christ in such a way that it would provoke discomfort 
or that it would provoke disruption in our lives? Or have we so watered down Jesus in our lives that you can't tell the difference between us and the world around us? It's challenging, and Jesus is confronting us here. Not only does he confront us in this passage, he gives us a really sweet invitation. Let's look at that, the second point, the invitation. Again, remember the context here. This is the annual Feast of the Booths. And get into this scene with me because it will make these words jump off the page if you do. The annual Feast of the Booths, one of the things that they would do every single day for the seven days that they were at this feast is the people would all gather at the Pool of Siloam and they would sing songs from the Old Testament. They would dance. It was a very joyful occasion and the priest would take a pitcher and dip it into the pool of Siloam. And then all of the people would get behind the priest. It was like a huge parade. And they would go to the temple and they would start circling the altar, the sacrificial altar. And then the priest would take the water and he would pour it into the base of the sacrificial altar. Why would he do that? Well, it was a sign. Remember in the Old Testament, they're looking for the Messiah. They're looking forward They're longing for God to give the water. It was a picture, an image of living water that God would give and satisfy them once and for all. And so that's why they would do this. And think about the last day of the feast, the climax of the feast. The last day, they would all gather behind the priest. He would dip the pitcher into the the pool of Siloam and he would go and accept on the last day as a kind of the height of the festival, he would circle the altar Not once, but seven times in a very dramatic fashion. And he would pour out the water into the base of the altar. And that would signify the close of the feast. And so you can imagine if you've ever been to a big event, maybe a Broadway show, that you didn't want to end. And it was kind of this stunned silence when it was over. Kind of like, we want more. And you were a little bit disappointed that it had to end. That's kind of the picture. It was over, and they wouldn't have another feast and celebration until next year. And another year was gone, and they were still thirsty. Now with that picture, look at verse 37. And think about how powerful this must have been. That on the last day of the feast, the great day, it says, Jesus stood up, and he gives them an invitation. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. Let him come and drink freely. Notice two observations. Notice it says, if anyone's thirsty. Not if you're qualified, come and drink. Not if you're committed enough, you can come and drink. Or not if you're surrendered enough. It says, all, come All you have to do is be needy. All you have to do is be thirsty. And if you're thirsty, then come and drink freely. Second observation. Notice he stood up. Back in that day, the teachers would sit down. He stood up. Not only did he stand up, he cried out. And the word used there is the word for yelling or shouting And so Jesus, imagine the picture as all of this 
uh, drama is going on with the priest and the altar, stands up when it's over, and he raises his voice as if to say, this is so important, you've got to hear what I'm about to say. And I want everyone that's even close to hear what I'm about to say. You see, Jesus is demanding to be heard. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. And if you've been coming the past couple of months, we've heard that theme over and over for the first six chapters. Jesus shows up at their feast, and he looks out at the people, and he says, you've got a problem. You're malnourished spiritually. You're depleted of your own resources. You're empty spiritually, and I am the bread of life. And here he comes and says, I am the living water. I am the one that you have longed for your entire life. I am the fulfillment of the feast of the booze. The feast will not give you what you ultimately desire because lasting joy comes from me and more specifically comes from when I bear your sin on the cross. And friends, it is no accident that the gospel writer John, when we learn that the soldier at Jesus' death, when he pierced his side, not just blood flowed from Jesus' side. He says that blood and water flowed from Jesus' side. That is no accident because John is putting these two things together and saying it is from the pierced side of Jesus that your deepest satisfaction comes. Jesus says, are you thirsty? I am living water. He's been saying that for six chapters, and he says it again in chapter 7. But he also says something else. Look at verses 38 through 39. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart, will flow, notice the plural, not the singular, not a river, but rivers of living water will flow out of him. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, I want you to think about this. Jesus says that you are a river of living water. And just to be clear here, you're not the source of that living water. The source of that living water is God, of course. But the Holy Spirit comes into your life and flows through you, rivers of living water. When you trust in Jesus, he fills you with, your, with his spirit so that you become a channel, a vessel of living water that goes through you into the world around you. That should be very good news to you this morning. Because if you're like me, you often feel like you're at the end of your resources. Anybody else feel that way? Do you ever feel like you have, uh, with your work or your spouse or your children or your friendships, that you look at those things and you're overwhelmed and you say, I have nothing else to give. I'm, I'm out. Is your tank on empty this morning? Where do you feel this morning that you are grinding it out in life? Where do you feel like you're dehydrated emotionally and spiritually and relationally? You see, it's in those areas that Jesus says, come. 
Come and drink freely, and I will give you more than enough. I will replenish you, and I will give you more than enough for that person to which you say, I have nothing else I can give. Mothers of young children this morning, do you feel like you're at the end of your rope? You feel like you have nothing else that you can give. Listen, friends, I'm not sure there is another group that walks around with more guilt on a regular basis than Christian mothers of young children. Seriously. Why is that? (laughs) Because at the end of the day, most of the time you feel depleted. And at the end of the day, most of the time you think of the hundred things that you could have done better or the hundred things that you did not get to do. Man, I I should have allowed more time for personal Bible study and prayer. Or, oh, I needed to take a meal to that person in the church. Or that friend that I've been wanting to get together with for months. Or, oh, the catechism. We're supposed to get our kids ready for Sunday night, and I haven't gone over the catechism with my children. Or the field trip that you're not able to go to and you feel guilty about. Or the snacks that you're not able to bring to the class or be the class, or the homeroom mom, or whatever it is. There's a hundred things that put you at the end of your rope. And listen, the answer is not drink from the water that says, now leave here and go be a better mom. Friends, that puts you under the pile even more, doesn't it? You see, we need to drink. You need to drink this morning from the fountain of Jesus. From the fountain of living water that looks at you and says, you're mine. And you're enough. And I love you. And I'm not only going to give you what you need. I'm going to make your cup overflow out into the world around you. You see, come to Jesus. And he will give you waters Uh, living water that will quench quench your thirst, but not only quench your thirst, it will be enough for you, and it will flow out of you into the world around you. Rivers of living water. Think about the difference this morning. This is a good picture for me. The difference between a bucket and a basket. Think about... when I, I, I've got this bucket that I wash my car with, I've been doing it for years, and I don't care how many times I rinse out the bucket, <laughs> it seems like within a second the bucket is grimy and filled with dirty water. Isn't, is, that, is that right? Why? Because it's trapped, and the water cannot flow through it. But think about a basket. When you pour water into a basket, what does it do? It goes and flows through the hose in that basket. Friends, we are baskets, not buckets. You see, the Lord's vision for our life is that we would be baskets, that the living water, the Holy Spirit would flow through us and make us holy and it would heal us and redeem us and it would flow through us, living water, to the other people around us. What is your vision this morning for your life? Are you a bucket? Do you keep the water trapped inside you? Is that your vision that I'm going to get Jesus and he's going to be my river 
And I might share that river with a few of my close friends, but we're going to be comfortable and we're going to keep that water to ourselves. Friends, that's not a river, that is a dam. (laughs) That's not a bucket. That is a bucket, not a basket. A bucket that is recycling dirty water. Or are you a basket this morning? The water, the Holy Spirit flow through you into the world around you. Rivers of living water. Does Jesus flow through you to the world around you? What about our church? Is this church our church? Are we rivers of living water to this city? To the city of Birmingham. What is our vision for reaching the city of Birmingham? And one of the ways you know that you're a river of living water is if we were to close our doors tomorrow morning and never open again, the city would weep. The city would weep because of the closing, because of the impact that we have had on this city. And not only Christians, non-Christians, people that didn't even know us would say, I didn't even believe what they were saying, but they made us so much better and made our city so much fuller and caused it to flourish, and they would be sad. What would it look like for us to be rivers of living water to our city? Well, it could look like lots of things, but it would look like us leading the way in racial reconciliation in our very divided city. It would look like us praying regularly for our city. It would look like us, instead of talking and telling people how much we know, listening and getting a fuller perspective. It would look like entering into people suffering with them, weeping with those who weep and mourning with those who mourn. It would look like serving the poor. It would look like ministering to our friends, not just always being nice, but being able to tell them hard things in love because we love them and want them to see their blind spots. It would look like being good neighbors and not simply pulling in the garage and putting the garage door down and not knowing anyone around us, but it would look like knowing their names and inviting them into our homes to share a meal. It would look like throwing a block party so that all could come. Rivers of living water. But you know what's interesting? You know what else it looks like to be a river of living water? And Jesus says this, and I found it very, very fascinating and interesting. You see, we think, in our natural ways that we think, is we've got to be good, well-trained. We've got to know our theology. We've got to work harder than the world works. We've got to be nicer than the world. We've got to be more relational and charismatic and those kinds of things. But Jesus doesn't say that. You want to know, he says the main way we can be rivers of living water is by the way we love one another. You remember that? Jesus says, the way the world's going to know whether or not you belong to me, what's going to get their attention is the way you love. Now, again, we're definitely called to love everybody in general, okay? But he doesn't say that. That's, that's assumed. He says, by the way you love each other. heard a story last week about this guy who he had just gotten out of prison and he'd become a Christian while he was in prison 
and he starts to work at this church. It's on the East Coast. And while he was in prison, and even before, he had gotten several vulgar, very vulgar tattoos all over his body. And this church hires him. He's now a Christian, and he ends up becoming a member of this church. And he wore long sleeves all the time, no matter what time of year it was, because he didn't want anybody to see the tattoos and the things that they said. Even uh, the people would say as he was doing work around the church or whatnot, the people would come up and and it would be mid-July's hottest part of the year he'd have on long sleeves. And so organically, the church began to pull their money together in order to help this guy and pay for the tattoo removal. And so he went and started getting these tattoos removed and the doctor said, listen, we've got more than enough money we're good. We don't need any more money. And not only that, they would run this shuttling service with this man because it took several appointments, and they were very painful appointments. And so members of the congregation uh, decided to drive him so that he would not have to drive in pain. Got to the point to where the doctor finally said, I'm not charging you another dime. I don't know who you people are. I don't know where you come from, but I have never seen anything like this, and I don't know how you know this man and why you're doing what you're doing, but I think it's wonderful, and it's one of the best things that I have ever seen in all of my years of being a doctor. I don't know whether the man was a Christian or not, the doctor, but what got his attention? What got his attention when... The people of God, the church, organically looked and said, this guy, he's with me. He's with us. And we're going to do anything and everything in our power in order to take care of him. That is a picture for us of what it looks like to be rivers of living water. Friends, this city, despite what people might think, is dying of thirst desperately in need of water. My prayer and my vision for our church is that we would be the people that would give it to them. We would be the people that would give it to them. Oh, Lord, help us to be baskets and not buckets. Oh, Lord, help us to be rivers of living water to a thirsty world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need your help. First of all, give us the faith to believe that we do really have living water flowing through us because of the Holy Spirit. Father, may we trust your ways and not the ways of the world. Would you make our church and would you make our lives and our families and our neighborhoods make us rivers of living water to the people around us? In Jesus' name, amen.